Hey, it's Jason Moon. The List was reported and produced by a new team here at New Hampshire Public Radio called Document. And I am so lucky to be a part of this team because we get to make the kind of radio journalism that I've loved since I was a kid. Long-form, enterprise, investigative, just good stories that really matter, like this one. And we think this kind of reporting is critical to being an informed citizen, especially now. But sadly, it is not free. If you want NHPR to make more work like this, consider making a donation to the station. The amount is up to you, but every contribution really makes a difference. You can find a link to donate in the show notes or go to our website, nhpr.org document. You're listening to The List, Part 2. I'm Jason Moon. About a year has passed since Carl Laurie was found guilty of the murder of Lucian Fogg. His attorney, Jim Moyer, is walking out of the courthouse when he bumps into a prosecutor he knows. And he took me aside and said, hey, did you hear about Steve Laro? Steve Laro. Steve Laro was a Franklin police officer, one of the ones who investigated Carl Laurie's case. Did you hear about Steve Laro? I said, no. He said, oh, well, there's lots of stuff about Steve Laro that you need to find out about. Let's not be coy. What what is it? Uh, He he was coy. Basically, what it was was that um, Steve Laro had a background um, of professional dishonesty. Jim is being polite here. At Steve Laro's first job as a cop in Massachusetts, He got so many letters of complaint, his chief said his personnel file was three inches thick. The letters alleged that Steve Lero was verbally abusive, that he threatened people with physical harm, and that in some cases he choked people who questioned his demeanor. It got so bad, the chief sent Steve Lero to see a psychologist. The psychologist concluded that he, quote, should not be entrusted with a gun and a badge and that he should be referred to counseling. Despite all this, Steve Laro got another gun and badge when he was hired by the Franklin Police Department. He arrived just a few years before Lucian Fogg's murder. At the Franklin PD, the pattern continued. Eventually, Steve Laro's bad behavior became so well-known that instructions came down from the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. In a phone call, a lawyer for the AG told the Franklin chief of police, quote, If you had a homicide tonight in Franklin, I would instruct you that Sergeant Laro not be involved in the case in any capacity. So, clearly, Steve Laro, not a shining example of protecting and serving. And here's why that mattered to Carl Laurie and his lawyer, Jim Moyer. In a famous U.S. Supreme Court case from 1963 called Brady v. Maryland, the court said that prosecutors must turn over evidence that is favorable to a defendant. Prosecutors usually have control over the bulk of evidence in a criminal trial. They work with the police who did the investigation. And before they use any of that evidence against someone at trial, they generally have to share it with the defense team. But what if the investigation found something that strengthens the defense's case? Sometimes prosecutors would just leave that out. In the Brady decision, the Supreme Court said, you can't do that anymore. 
sounds great, but it still happens. A report from the National Registry of Exonerations looked at 2,400 exonerations in the U.S. since 1989. In almost half of those, prosecutors withheld evidence that could have helped the accused. As any practitioner who knows, Brady is uh, like a piece of Swiss cheese. This is what happened in the Carl Lorry case. All that bad stuff about Officer Steve Laro, the prosecution knew about it before trial. But they just left that part out when they turned over their evidence to the defense. The state admits, yes, we knew about this. The issue really came down to this, which is, do we have to disclose it? And the state's position was, no, we don't. The problem with Brady, according to lots of legal scholars, is that it says prosecutors have to turn over evidence favorable to the defense only if they think it's relevant to the case. In the Lori case, the prosecutors decided that all that stuff about Officer Steve Laro, it just wasn't relevant, even though the arguments on both sides hinged on the credibility and conduct of police officers. Remember when Carl Lori said, I'm sorry it happened. I didn't mean to hurt Lucian. He said that to Steve Laro. Or did he? Laro was the only one in the room during the booking procedure when he claims Carl Lorre said that. The prosecution had used that statement to undermine the argument that Carl Lorre's confession was coerced. They said that moment with Steve Laro was a second confession. But if the jury had known that a psychologist said Officer Steve Laro shouldn't be trusted with a badge, they might not have been so quick to believe that story. But Jim Moyer never got to tell the jury about that because he had no idea about Laro's history. All this was enough for Carl Lorry to launch a new appeal. The case went to the New Hampshire Supreme Court, and their decision would put Carl's last name in newspapers for decades to come. The court sided with Carl Lorry and overturned his conviction. They rejected the state's argument that Steve Laro's background wasn't relevant. And in doing so, they set a new standard for New Hampshire courts. It said the prosecution has to turn over every piece of evidence favorable to the defendant unless they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the evidence would not affect the verdict. The Supreme Court basically, not basically, expressly acknowledged that if you have evidence that's helpful to a defendant in a criminal case, you must provide it. And that includes whether a cop who investigated the case has a sketchy past. Carl Lorre's case was sent back to a lower court. But rather than going through with a new trial, he decided to plea to a lesser charge, second-degree murder. He's still in state prison today at 70 years old. He'll be eligible for parole in 2024. The state prison system did not make Carl available for an interview. For public defenders like Jim Moyer, the Lori ruling was a big win. It meant, at least in theory, that more evidence favorable to defendants would be turned over in future cases. But for prosecutors, this ruling it created a problem, a logistical problem, that they're still trying to work out today. See, to turn over evidence of an officer's checkered history in a court case, the prosecutor has to first know it exists. But in New Hampshire, even prosecutors don't have access to police personnel files. 
except in really rare circumstances. They're confidential by state law. That's true in a lot of states. We're going to dig into that later. The information about Steve Laro's past didn't even come from his personnel file. It came from a background check that state police did when he applied to be a state trooper. So the only way for prosecutors to learn about future Lori issues is to ask. For every case involving a cop, a prosecutor had to contact the police department and ask if there was anything in the officer's file that could damage their case. This process was a huge pain. Cops testify in lots of cases. And for every single one, county attorneys were supposed to make formal requests to police chiefs. Until finally, someone said, instead of asking who's got a Lori issue every time, why don't we just make a list? A Lori list. When I started asking questions about the list, I actually had a county attorney say, I can't talk about that. I can't even, I can't talk about that. That's secret. County attorneys started keeping a list of every officer they knew about with a Lori issue, something in their history that could undermine their credibility at trial. And when Nancy West first started asking about the list, she says they refused to turn it over. But eventually, after filing a public records request with the attorney general's office, she was given a redacted copy. Big black boxes cover almost half of what's on every page. At the top, you have a list, different columns. You have the name. The current Lori list stretches across 14 pages. It contains the names of roughly 270 police officers. The redactions make it impossible to say how many there are for sure. The list is broken out into five columns. So under the columns, you have name, department, date of incident, date of notification, and category. Now, totally blacked out are the names and the dates of the incident. What you can see is the column that reads category. These are the different reasons people were put on the list. And these are each different different officers. Deception and credibility, truthfulness, sustained violation of department rules, credibility, misuse of authority, criminal conduct, couple of excessive force, excessive force, excessive force, misrepresentation to the chief, excessive force, bias, credibility, conviction, unlawful conduct, office prosecuted, credibility. There's just quite a, a variety, but largely a lot of them based on someone's ability to testify truthfully at a trial, which is kind of sad. Across the country, there are many different versions of this same story. Secret lists that don't always work and that have unintended consequences. In many states, they're simply called Brady lists after that original Supreme Court case. Tonight, News 6 investigates police officers accused of misconduct who remain on the job despite questions about their credibility. It's called the Brady list, and the News 4 Tucson investigators have... Imagine a police department filled with those officers. Well, ABC 15 investigator Dave Biskubing about to show you... And Early this month, we published a story about a secret list of problem L.A. County sheriff's deputies. I'm here with one of the reporters of the story. Colorado, Arizona, Massachusetts, California. The L.A. Times found one officer was put on a list because he faked blood on a shirt with taco sauce after he lost the actual bloody shirt that was supposed to be kept as evidence. 
These lists are supposed to ensure that what happened in the case against Carl Lorre never happens again. After a break, why that hasn't worked. Robin Malone had a tough case ahead of her. She was a young lawyer in the public defender's office in New Hampshire. Her client was facing a domestic violence charge for allegedly assaulting his wife. This was not his first domestic case. We had tried to negotiate. The offer from the state had been 18 months. Um, And my client ultimately had said, no, I want my trial. She'd seen the photos of the victim. Didn't look good for her guy. But then his luck changed. I showed up in court that afternoon with the client, checked in with the prosecutor to see if all the witnesses were there and if there was anything last minute. Um, and at that point, he offered a, a no-time deal. I, I looked at him. I was a little stunned, frankly, to go from 18 months to serve to nothing. <laughs> uh, I had seen the victim come in, so I knew they had their witnesses. Confused, Robin took that offer to her client. He could plead guilty, serve no jail time, and be on probation for a couple of years. But he still said no. So I was ready. I went back to the prosecutor and I said, "Um, he's he's declined, but we're ready. So should I tell the court that we're good to go? And he just looked at me. He said, okay. So we went into the courtroom. I was setting up my documents and um, putting stuff out on the table. The clerk was... Um, getting ready to call the judge in, and the prosecutor came in, and he grabbed me. He's like, I need, I need to talk to you. Took me back out into the hallway, and he said, we're dumping it. I said, what do you mean you're dumping it? He's like, we don't want to disclose the Lori stuff. We don't want to disclose the Lori stuff. According to Robin, rather than turn over information from the personnel file of a cop involved in the case, the prosecution decided to drop it. And my client was like, what's going on? So I took him out to one of the conference rooms and I said, they're dropping it. He's like, why? And in in that moment, I was like, don't ask why, just accept it. He's like, okay. Um, (laughs) So um, I had no fucking clue what was going on. (laughs) Sorry, don't, pardon my my F-bombs. What happened next is something that's always stayed with Robin. I sat with my client and I watched the victim uh, leave. She was very upset. She was crying. She had a friend with her. Um, it was patently clear to me that she did not want this result. It was confusing for me because I had, for all intents and purposes, as you said, won. Um, but it didn't feel like I won for the right reasons. It felt really dirty. So I got back to the office and everyone was like, what happened? This is so quick. I was like, who's this Lori person? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? Who's, who's Lori? I was like, They said they didn't want to give me the Lori stuff, so they're dropping the case. And one of the senior attorneys was like, Lori's a case. I'm like, oh. (laughs) Today, Robin is head of the New Hampshire Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. But that experience early in her career helped solidify her view and the view of most defense attorneys of the Lori list. People have a strong disdain for it. I think they hate it. We don't trust the process. The process Robin is talking about, the Lori list, who gets on it, how that information is disclosed or not, it's actually hard to find anyone in the legal community in New Hampshire who trusts it's working exactly as intended, that it can prevent another case like Lori. 
One problem is what Robin's story shows. The list can create an incentive for prosecutors to drop cases. Either the prosecutor in that case discovered the Lori issue late and decided it weakened the case so severely that he dropped it, or the prosecutor was talked out of going through with the case in order to simply not embarrass the officer with the Lori issue. Another problem with the list, the whole system relies on police departments turning over their own misconduct files. No one else has the authority to go through officers' personnel files to spot Lori issues. The responsibility rests solely with the town's police chief. The New Hampshire AG's office tries to ensure some consistency. They ask every police department to certify that they've reviewed their personnel files for Lori issues each year. But in 2019, only 17% of police departments said they did that. There's no penalty for not doing it. I wouldn't take a test that was 17% reliable, right? I'm going to send my kid for a driving test. If he gets a 17%, I'm going to let him drive. It's not going to happen. Another complaint that often comes up, there's only a vague agreement on what defines a lorry issue. There aren't clear rules on which cops get added and for what. The AG's office offers a general description, deliberately lying during an official proceeding or in a police report, falsifying records or evidence, theft, fraud, egregious dereliction of duty, excessive use of force, and mental instability. Officers' names are only supposed to be added to the list if an internal affairs investigation confirms that one of those things happened. But even within those categories, there's a lot of gray area. What if a cop fakes their time card to get overtime pay? Did they falsify a record? Should they go on the list? It's up to individual police chiefs to decide. That always gave me cause for concern because you're, you're having somebody, a non-lawyer, essentially make that initial determination. And it's such a gray area to begin with. Leslie Gill spent a dozen years as a prosecutor in New Hampshire. She used to keep the Lori list open on her computer. It was a one-page Excel spreadsheet, essentially. And so I, every time when I would do cases for indictment, I would just have the Lori list up and I would just refer to it. At some point, you get so familiar with it, you just know who's on there. Leslie did not want to be like the prosecutors in the Lori case. Having a conviction overturned, violating a defendant's due process rights, it's not a good look. But Leslie says the list didn't even guarantee that that wouldn't happen arguably the one thing it should be able to do. I mean, I can recall having a case in our office um, done by very experienced prosecutors. They did a trial. Um, they were successful with the trial. They got a guilty verdict on a very major case. I was having a conversation with the attorney because there was an officer who was on the list, and I had the same officer coming up in a case, and I said, what happened with the, the glory material? Um, did it end up coming in a trial? And the attorney looked at me and was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, that officer's on the list. And they never turned it over. And so that trial, after a guilty verdict, the state had to tell the court that they failed to provide that material and the case got reversed and they had to retry it. So, I mean, it does happen. actually think a lot of people care about this issue once it has been drawn to their attention. For years, Rachel Moran at the University of St. Thomas in Minneapolis 
has studied how access to police personnel files, or lack thereof, shapes our legal system. Rachel points at how imbalanced the system is when it comes to getting a look at a police officer's history versus a defendant's history. Say you're charged with resisting arrest. It's your word against the cops. One of the first things a prosecutor will do is see if you have a criminal record. You know, touch of a couple buttons on a screen and the prosecutor has access to that kind of information. But if you, as the defendant, wanted to know a few things about that officer... Let's propose a couple things that might be relevant. Does this officer have a history of filing resisting arrest charges? A a surprisingly high number of them. Um, Have previous resisting arrest claims been dismissed or have defendants been found not guilty at trial? That's where the obstacles come in. Um, I can't just click on a database and access that kind of information. In states where officer personnel files are shielded by law, like New Hampshire, it would be really hard, maybe impossible, to get that kind of information. On the next episode of The List, how the Lori List fits into the conversation this country is having right now around police accountability. It affects me. It affected me and how keeping the list secret backfires for some officers today. It's the kiss of death for your career. The list was created by the Document Team at New Hampshire Public Radio. It was reported, written, and mixed by me, Jason Moon. Lauren Chuljan is Document's senior producer. Document is edited by Dan Barrick. Additional editing help from Erica Janik, Maureen McMurray, Mary McIntyre, and Todd Bookman. Original artwork for the series was created by Sarah Plord, She also manages the digital presence of the document team. NHPR's director of audience is Rebecca Lavoie. Part three of the list is available now.